Welcome to Moving Target, my Rockfin exclusive. Joining me today to discuss her new upcoming book, Part 1 and 2, as well as some of the overlapping discussions from that. It may bleed over into COVID-19, a story that she's been light years ahead of for most ahead of most people on. And a couple of other discussions we might have around other topics and, you know, just see where it goes. Because one of my favorite people to dive into random conversations with, Whitney Webb, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing well. How are y'all? Well... Y'all meeting the audience and also yeah. meeting you, Brian. <laughs> no, I'm doing good. Thank you for asking. Uh, it's it's nice to have you back on. I know you've been very busy, so it's a, it's good to get in and talk about what you've been dealing with. And you know, the book being something I know everybody's very eager to hear about and and dive into because it's been a long awaited book. Yeah, it's also <laughs> my first book, and I kind of have this reputation of like writing kind of long longer than I originally intend pieces that are really heavily sourced and detailed and so yeah applying that to a book uh i did that and so it got it was really long uh and so for the physical copy the publisher split it into two books uh so sorry about that but it ended up it was always like originally going to be two books within one book um for people familiar with my original epstein stuff in 2019 it was like for a four-part series uh back when i wrote for mint press news and the first two parts of that were like pre Epstein about sex blackmail and stuff. And, mm-hmm. and the last two were about Epstein and Robert Maxwell and, and stuff like that. So uh, basically the book was, you know, uh, half of it, the part one was pre Epstein. And the second part was the Epstein focused material and Wexner and Max uh, Ghislaine Maxwell and stuff. Um, so it ended up just being split down the middle in this volume one and two in the physical copy, but there's going to be an ebook and an audio book. And those are going to be both volumes. Uh, together because in, in total it's 21 chapters so chapters 1 to 10 is volume 1 and uh, 11 to 21 is volume 2 which uh awesome. what you are showing there is the bundle if you scroll down on the bundle page oh sorry my hands like totally for no uh yeah the the other tab yeah if you go to the bottom you'll see the cover for both the you closed the one i was mentioning it's okay oh, sorry. So, uh, <laughs> it's okay if you go to trinday.com and you go to upcoming releases and you scroll to the bottom and go to the second page yeah so you'll see bundles yeah volume one and two those are the two books you can buy it as a bundle from trine day for less money than it would cost to buy both separately so if you want both physical copies that is the best way to go but more cost effective for most people will probably be ebook and audiobook um I just want people to to check out the material because, you know, um, uh, this is the deepest dive I could possibly have done on Epstein intelligence stuff. If you're interested in that in any capacity and the implications of that, where it came from, how he was enabled and the support network that allowed him to do that stuff, which preceded him and continues to exist now after he's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is, this is, probably at least as of right now the definitive book on that so uh with an insane amount of citations people that have read it say that i outdid or came close to outdoing uh i haven't read it but the the fauci book by robert f kennedy jr oh i uh (laughs) i i a lot of citations but i tend to do that anyway so all the sources are there um and i would really encourage people to to consider checking it out because I Absolutely. worked really hard on it. <laughs> so I really, you know, it's not really a money thing for me. It's like, just please read all my hard work <laughs> and tell me what you think. And let's have a, have a discussion about it. Right. Because a lot of, um, 
I feel like I dug up a lot of stuff specifically on uh, the Epstein Clinton White House relationship in the 1990s that um, has a lot of big implications for now. Um, and I think I just want people to read it and have a so we can talk about it and it can be like a thing mm-hmm. uh, that, that gets addressed, you know. Uh, yeah. The other thing, too, is like if this, you know, the, the intelligence uh, connection to Epstein's sex trafficking activities, you know, states, it means it's state sponsored at the end of the day. So right. there's a lot of implications for that. But also, um, you know, uh, these people you know, that are detailed in the book, including Epstein, um, you know, the more you look at Epstein's career, it looks like he started off as a financial criminal with intelligence ties and then started dabbling in sex trafficking and then moved into that in the early 2000s is like his main thing. But there's uh, this, I'm sure a lot of people have noticed when it comes to mainstream media attention of Epstein, it's almost exclusively focused on the years 2000 to 2006 when he was arrested the first time. Mm-hmm. And that's six years on a guy who, who's like links to intelligence appear to go back to like the seventies. So that's several decades that we just can't talk about. So there's an interesting point right there in regard to how, you know, especially with what we see and discuss around the FBI, let's say creating yeah. events. So when you, would you potentially think about you know, or argue, I haven't read the book yet, obviously if he was arrested at that point and that's when they look forward from, was that when he was essentially co-opted into being the, the, the person, you know what I mean? Like the argument being that a lot of times you find people get arrested and put in a position where they then use that to drive them into being the tool that they use for. Yeah. So he, he was only like arrested the first time in like 2006, 2007, and he became an FBI informant officially at that point, technically. And there's documentation of that. Uh, But I would argue that Epstein's most significant activities are probably in the nineties and the eighties. And there's been no scrutiny of those activities at all. Uh, including, I mean, here's one example. In December of last year, uh, the Daily Mail, which is a UK tabloid, you know, mm. not even that like well respected. But you know, you can you can it, it it the media scene in the UK is a little different because they have really strong libel laws. So like even if a tabloid publishes something that's untrue, they can get sued. So it's not like tabloids in the US, like at the supermarket checkout mm. counter. You know, where they can be like bat boy and whatever, <laughs> you know, so it's like it's like different in that sense. So like they can't make shit up just to sell whatever to sell issues. Uh, but, it, you know, they tend to look, look for topics that are more sensational to get purchases. I would just put a little right. asterisk to that and say they can definitely make stuff up as long as it's in certain directions allowed by the well, discussion. Well, sure. To get your point. But when it, yeah, but when it comes to like Epstein and stuff, like right, they can't right. just like make something up out of whole cloth is my right. point because they could get sued for that in the UK in contrast to like tabloids in the US. There's like a difference there. 100%. Um, so anyway, that's really the only outlet that wrote about the Clinton White House visitor logs uh, with Epstein's name on them. And previous to that, the only US media outlet I'm aware of that reported on the Clinton Epstein relationship during the Clinton white house uh, was the daily beast. And they said five visits and it came out last December that it was actually 17 in less than two years. That's a lot. Um, and no U S media outlet cared. And this is the Clinton white. This is U S stuff. And it's a UK tabloid reporting on it. And then five months later, the main guy that Epstein was meeting at the White House with, Mark Middleton, is found dead under just insane circumstances in Arkansas. 
Of course. <laughs> yeah. And that also gets no coverage. That's covered either only by local Arkansas media outlets or, uh, again, UK tabloids. Why has there been literally zero attention on that? That's mm. nuts. When you consider how... Uh, how much, how many clicks and whatever, like Epstein, anything ch- tends to generate in, right. in, you know, U.S. media consumption. Yeah, especially when they pretend. Why like do they ignore that? That's, I mean, that should be telling to people. And it becomes more telling when you start looking into Mark Middleton. And uh, the example I've been giving on a lot of interviews recently, because I think it's just insanely telling. Um, a couple weeks before 9-11, uh, September 11th, 2001, the Bush administration invoked executive privilege for the first time. And that was to prevent documents going to Congress. And those documents were documents specifically related to investigations into Mark Middleton's time at the white house. And Mark Middleton had resigned, had left uh, resigned, I believe uh, the white house in February, 1995. So, you know, this is like six years later, a different administration that's ostensibly against the Clintons and they step in to protect this guy. Who's nominally a low level staffer that left six years ago. Right. Executive privilege. And that congressional investigation pretty much evaporates when nine 11 happens anyway. And that whole scandal around Mark Middleton has been memory hold. And with the revelation that Clinton's meeting, uh, sorry, Epstein's meeting Mark Middleton at the white house, most of the 17 times he goes and he's taking women with him. On one of those meetings, Mark Middleton flies with Epstein from D.C. to Florida to the Bahamas, apparently going to Epstein's island and stuff. No attention to this at all. And no one's revived uh, what the investigations about Mark Middleton and his White House activities were about. And that's because you'll figure out, um, as I pretty much did, and it's in the book, um, why Epstein was around this guy um, at the time. And it's it's pretty nuts. It's basically a continuation of Iran-Contra of the Reagan administration, which Clinton was involved with when he was governor of Arkansas hmm. with Amina, Arkansas. But you have uh, the version of that in the Clinton administration, like illegal gun running intelligence linked shit. Can you, can you elaborate on that or are we gonna have to read the book to find out the, the well the i can there? elaborate on some of it but i mean if <laughs> yeah. you want the detail and the sourcing and like the minutiae of it yeah. i mean uh you know right. it took me like <laughs> 500 pages to explain it so you know well, if, you, if you feel go ahead and if you want to elaborate a little bit and i have a couple you know points i want to yeah but it's i mean it's i think it's a really big deal uh, i think it's it's big enough this investigation into into this stuff around mark middleton uh, when co- I, I was reading the existing reports of Congress about it and writing the book. And I mean, they, they were just stonewalled in a way that I think is, is impre- just really impressive out mm-hmm. of all the witnesses. They tried to subpoena like hardly any cooperated. Um, yeah. There was hardly any mainstream media interest in covering the case, which was bizarre. Um, Mark Middleton, when he had to testify, pleaded the fifth 28 times to questions including questions are you a foreign agent of another government interesting he just would not answer stuff and the more you look at it the basically the focus at the time was on people tied to china yeah but at the same time you have these these guys linked to certain power networks in china and you also at the same time have the epstein 
people, not just Epstein, but you have people in Epstein's broader network and people that were business associates of Robert Maxwell or Mark Rich or, you know, people tied to Mossad that are also active in the former Soviet Union and have business relationships with the, the Russian mafia. You have those two groups basically circling each other and involved in this Clinton stuff at the time. Yeah. And um, it, they're basically buying access to the DNC and to the White House for specific purposes. And a lot of it has to do with espionage goals, I think, of both Israel and China that were complementary during the time. Because Israel and China have a longstanding military relationship that precedes their official Right. diplomatic relations relationship which began in 1992 uh from the late 70s on israel was uh, uh basically trying to so basically iran before the revolution was israel's main market for like mm -hmm. weapons and then obviously not after the revolution so thanks to this business billionaire guy uh, israeli billionaire named shal eisenberg they start basically funneling selling most of their weapons to China. And mm. that's the plan. Um, and there's, and ahead. by 1993, you have top officials at the CIA saying Israel, everything we pass them because of the special relationship they pass on to China um, and a bunch right. of like really other illegal stuff. And so this is sort of a, a big advancement of this that involves illegal arms smuggling into uh, urban communities in the U S during the height of gang violence. Mm. And, um, yeah, which is similar to Gary Webb stuff about right. crack. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So this is the other side of it. And this was yeah. going on in the Clinton administration. That's what it looks like. And it looks like the main airline used to smuggle that stuff in during part of this was Southern Air Transport, which is the Iran-Contra airline that did all that stuff. But at the time this was going on, it was taken over by Leslie Wexner's The Limited with Epstein's intimate involvement and all these Guys on the China side of it that are circling Mark Middleton, mm -hmm. you know, Epstein's also circling Mark Middleton at the same time. And he's concurrently or simultaneously negotiating with Southern Air Transport to relocate to Columbus to go from Hong Kong to Columbus and stuff. And it's just there's a bunch of I mean, this is like the super reduced version. Right. Well, of it. I was curious. But this is insane. And there's a reason. I mean, <clears throat> There's a huge cover up with Epstein and it's not just about the sex trafficking, you know, right, and, right. and this is just the 90s stuff. I mean, the farther you go back, the bigger and crazier it gets. And the question is, you know, what is <laughs> how much other stuff has been covered up like this? Because the exactly. stuff in the Clinton administration is really totally nuts. And it's not just this arm stuff. It's also like mass scale technology transfer illegal technology yeah. transfer uh from the u.s to china with israel as a middleman right exactly. and I was just talking about that one of the main guys that was central to this scandal a business executive uh is the main guy that put biden in office in 2020 of course the, the well, yeah so this is so there's an, an interesting connection there and i don't want to get too far away from the intelligence park so i really want to ask your opinion on that a little bit deeper but in regard to just in the overlap of what we're seeing today, do you find that there's a connection dating all the way back there? Potentially, like you've you've elucidated the idea of of Epstein, um, even the idea of Charles Lieber and Harvard, and this weird connection to the eugenicist, transhumanist kind of research and what we're seeing today with COVID nineteen and the injections. Do you see that there's potentially a connection then to now with that kind of work? You know, with Clinton administration and everything, or are these things separate in your mind? Um, okay, so as, as far as like Epstein and science, 
that sort of started to pick up with him in this same period. I would say uh, from 95 probably on and getting a lot more extensive around 99 and mm-hmm. then beyond that. And 1999 was the year that Melanie Walker was his science advisor, who is a woman that Epstein basically recruited uh, ostensibly for Victoria's Secret modeling work in right. 1992, and then is guided through her studies, apparently uh, financed her graduate studies, Epstein did. She's a right. neurologist. Um so she becomes the, the special science advisor to Epstein a couple years later in like 2002 or 2003, she becomes, she becomes science advisor to um, the Gates foundation, even though Bill Gates says he has no idea who Epstein was at that point in time. Somehow a girl walks in and her resume is basically like, I was the science advisor for Jeffrey Epstein. And he goes, yep, you're hired without knowing who Epstein is or what science he's into at all. Yeah, right. um, if you believe the mainstream narrative about Bill Gates and Jeffrey Epstein, you're a sucker. No yeah. offense. <laughs> um well, this is why that China so, overlap really caught my attention. You know, going back to the Clintons and and even just the facilitation of yeah, so Israel. The broader network behind Epstein when it comes to finance and stuff, like the the crew that came out of Drexel, Burnham, Lambert, and you have people from there that are known Epstein associates, Leon Black, Ron Perlman, who was mm-hmm. also involved in this Clinton fundraising stuff, for example. Um you know, they sort of swim in, in the, in these capital networks that have uh, forged a lot of connections over in, in China too. Uh, hmm. Steve Schwartzman of Blackstone Capital is a really good example of that there too, in terms of how point. he's cultivated a lot of influence over there. But yeah. um, in, in talking about like Gates specifically, where I was going with that is, you know, Melanie Walker comes on board. She gets involved with the Gates Foundation, Boris Nikolic, who is a longtime advisor to Gates for Science Matters, is also there. And she, Melanie Walker introduces Nikolic to Epstein. Um, and they basically, Epstein brings them into the same financing network. So it looks like Epstein... Um, I really think people just need to scrutinize his finances. This financial activity needs to be scrutinized heavily because there's a reason they only want you to talk about the sex trafficking. Like I said before. So um, yeah, so he's getting financing for Boris Nikolic and all this venture capital stuff. And he's, involved with with the creation of things like the clinton foundation epstein was intimately involved in the creation of the clinton foundation and intimately involved per bill clinton himself before epstein was arrested the first time in designing their whole public health approach for the third world epstein basically made that and this hiv aids stuff right Uh, you can't miss this biosecurity connection going back a long way to what it step by step leads to where we are today even if that was the idea then or not you can see that connection to today yeah yeah, and one of the the trips where a lot of this stuff was set up, you know, the infamous Africa trip where Clinton's mm-hmm. on Epstein's plane with Kevin Spacey and whatever, right? So, um, that's when a lot of that was being set up. Um, and a couple of years later, Epstein in testimony says, "I do a lot. Of, I do lots of work in Africa," but mm-hmm. he has no formal. Uh, presence in Africa. I would argue that's because, but by, by the time he made that statement in 2012, and you know the early 2000s, uh, he was still involved with the Clinton Foundation, just not publicly. Right. And right. he said also that Africa is, uh, I forget the exact quote, but uh, the perfect place to experiment, basically. 
That didn't surprise me at all. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're voiceless and they don't have enough infrastructure. So you can right. do whatever you want to them, basically. And that's essentially what he says. And he says this while Epstein's trying to create a company called Southern Trust, uh, which wants to data mine the genomic data, the gene sequence and mass, the population of the U.S. Virgin Islands, where he's living on mm-hmm. his islands, part of that. Right. So he wants to basically take the islanders of the U.S. Virgin Islands, sequence all of their genes, and sell that data to Big Pharma. That's what he's trying to do in 2012. Uh, and and precipitate a lot of this, this stuff, this sort of transhumanist, whatever, fourth industrial revolution medicine. Epstein's already deep in this stuff by like right. 2008, 2012. And you could argue he was an architect of some of it because some of the biggest foundations that push this shit like the Clinton Foundation and the Gates Foundation, he was intimately involved in designing their public health stuff, either directly or through Melanie Walker, who he basically trained. Um, By the way, right before she joined the Gates Foundation, she was sent over to entertain Prince Andrew, just her and him at Epstein Zorro Ranch property, and asked the manager to help her pick out tea that would make Prince Andrew horny. (laughs) That's on the record? Yeah. That's it's just, you know, I, that, that's willful ignorance to not see that these things <clears throat> indicate exactly what. Yeah. You, well, yeah. here's here's the other thing that I, I need to point out, too, about mm-hmm. Epstein's sex trafficking activities. There were two parallel sex trafficking or women trafficking operations, women and girls. Um, so you have the one everyone knows about, which was massive, involved vulnerable ex- women that were exploited and dumped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After they I don't know. Uh, were no longer deemed useful for whatever reason. Um, and then you have a group of wi- uh, of women who appear to be recruited as girls or young college age women, and then are cultivated over a series of years, either through education or other means. And they're basically pimped out, not necessarily for massages and whatever massages, mm-hmm. uh, but to become the girlfriends and wives of the power elite that surround Epstein. And his network. So Melanie Walker is one of those. Um, Another one is Nicole Yunkerman, uh, Francis Hardeen, Selena Middlefart, who almost married Trump, uh, his Mm. girlfriend prior to Melania. And oddly enough, Melania was allegedly, per Maxwell and Epstein, if you want to believe them, introduced to Trump by them. So it seems like some of uh, (laughs) uh, Trump's more significant romantic relationships were arranged by that pair. Um, Take whatever you want (laughs) from that. Uh, But it seems like it was a practice that was going on. These people were basically uh, married off to people in the network after getting in with Epstein. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them uh, were taken by Epstein to the white house when he went to the Clinton white house, they accompanied him. These, they weren't underage, but they were young and attractive former models, stuff like that. And then, you know, they go to grad school or get, you know, degrees that are financed by him and then marry the elite or become their girlfriends or whatever. Um, so anyway, Melanie Walker is one of, one of those. And, and there's several of them and they're more like sophisticated assets at the end of the day. Right. Well, and, and you could, mm-hmm. you know, at least ask the question whether or not there's an exactly what you just said, there a facilitation of information coming from within their circles and which feeds right back to the people who are creating this network you know, so I, I, unless you want to go further on that, I wanted to ask about the intelligence connections because that's a big one that even the average person seems to have kind of gleaned from the conversation over the last 
however many years about like, for instance, Acosta basically saying openly in a discussion. Well, he it, confirmed it. Yeah. yeah. Well, but it was the way he said it, people, they tried to dismiss it because it was, but I agree. I think it's a blatant confirmation. Well, but, but, well, but he Mas- told the Masad Trump or CIA kind of a thing. Yeah. Right. Well, he told the Trump transition team. He was told right. Epstein belonged to intelligence and to back off. Right. Then when he was asked by reporters after that came out, he gave a non-committal answer and exactly. wanted to confirm or deny. And so they took that as, oh, it's not confirmed. Yeah. Okay. Right. But- as the previous thing that he said that to the Trump transition team is confirmed. So someone told him to go easy on Epstein because Epstein belonged to intelligence. Right, right. Well, and so that so. I mean, next question is going to be what you, in your opinion, the Trump, you know, overlap there, not even just Trump, but really just the kind of, you know, they try right now. The frustrating part about the two party paradigm, as always, is they try to make it about one thing or the other. And I was interested if you yeah. see it on both. But la- last kind of question on the intelligence part, like in, in regard to that, have you in your research fleshed out that in regard to whether CIA, Mossad or what influence that had or whether it's still there now and so on? Just, you know, give me your thoughts on that. OK, the reason the book had to be two volumes is because it's a really complex question to answer. And that's mm-hmm. because most people, I think, misunderstand how intelligence operates at uh, during this period of time and now. Um, so basically, um, for a long time, intelligence isn't necessarily siloed. You know, there's yeah. like transnational stuff that goes on. Um, it seems to me that Epstein was closer at the time he was arrested the first time, closer to Israeli intelligence than U.S. intelligence. It seems like the bulk of his U.S. intelligence and connections, that was back in the 80s and 90s. And uh, after that, got closer to Israel. But I would say his affiliation with Israel is con- it overlaps with his involvement in U.S. intelligence in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. Um and it gets it gets complicated to explain, which is why volume one is so necessary. So I'll give you an example. Um, Epstein is on is more or less involved in the very complex situation that today is remembered as Iran Contra. Um, and Iran Contra has a lot of overlap with another scandal that was going on simultaneously in the same era of the Promise Software scandal. Mm-hmm. Right? They're intimately related, as a matter of fact. So. In both of those, you have a mix of various people working on what is essentially a CIA operation that's being done in tandem with Israeli intelligence. Iran-Contra was U.S. US and Israeli intelligence working together. And actually, the operation that preceded what is remembered today as Iran-Contra was called Black Eagle. And that was Israel and the U.S., again, cooperating, Mm -hmm. creating sort of this support apparatus for for the Contras um, in Central America. So um, with Noriega of Panama and all this stuff, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's really complex. But basically, at the end of the day, you have um, various people operating in, you know, as as parts of these scandals. You have people tied to organized crime. You have people tied to um, banks that are tied to intelligence and organized crime that are used in money laundering and all sorts of other things, like uh, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, BCCI, which mm-hmm. plays an, a, a, a prominent role in both Promise and Iran-Contra. Um, you have uh, drug cartels involved, what the stuff going on here, the Medellin and Cali cartels specifically, but you know, there may have been more. You have uh, bankers, offshore banking. Um, you have arms traffickers, many of whom are tied to intelligence 
Adnan Khashoggi, for example, tied to like four or five intelligence agencies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it gets really complex after a while. And then, of course, you have CIA agents, you have Israeli military intelligence, you have Mossad, um, all this stuff is in the mix. And, you know, and that's not really even all of it. I mean, it, it, but basically you have, you have intelligence organized crime and you have people that straddle both of those worlds in the, in the private sector. And uh -oh. that's what Epstein was in. Sorry, you just, cut, you, like just, you just cut out there for about 10 seconds, just in case. I'm oh, sorry. So you have all of these different groups coming together, but basically they're all straddling intelligence and organized crime and intelligence and organized crime in the U S uh, basically merged in world right. war two. Mm -hmm. um, and those same networks of merged in U S intelligence and organized crime were involved in the arming of the Haganah, which is the precursor to the IDF in Israel and are there and involved with uh, Mossad from the very beginning. And so I have to go back and explain that history to explain how it gets that way right. uh, over time and how these particular actors come together and they engage in things like sex blackmail to influence policy in Congress um, and, and various other things. They compromise and blackmail the FBI, uh, who, which ends up stepping in to protect them instead of investigate them. And this is something that goes back to the 1940s, right? So it's no wonder the FBI is the way it is now because it's been like, you know, 70 or 80 years of it being like heavily compromised and doing, having its entire uh, mission, you know, in practice, it's completely inverted at this point. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's, so... It's Mm -hmm. So yeah. with the intelligence connections with Epstein, you have him stepping into that world. Um, if not by 1981, it's, I think it was before, to be honest, I think it was in the seventies, uh, but definitely by 1981, he's there in this mix. Uh, and, you know, uh, right at the time he takes on people like Edna Khashoggi as a client, two other people who were involved with intelligence link sex blackmail take on Adnan Khashoggi as a client. And all of these people were close to Bill Casey. In the case of Epstein, uh, Bill Casey was the legal counsel to Bell Stern, Bear Stearns right up until he became CIA director. Mm -hmm. And then two months later, there's legal advice given to Epstein and Bear Stearns that Epstein has to leave Bear Stearns mm -hmm. because of insider trading stuff with uh, Edgar Bronfman and some oh, other God. stuff. So that, there's... The web is just so ridiculously obvious. Like this is why I love your work and, and the, the lines that are drawn between these, you know, I mean, for those that don't even know, like Bromfin, the idea of, of Nexium and all these different conversations. I mean, it's just, it's almost impossible to ignore at the very least that people should be researching this stuff. So thank you for laying this yeah. out to people. I think but, it's but what I'm trying to say is the intelligence stuff is more complicated oh, than they, they want you to believe well, because the they want you to think, the CIA is just the CIA and does this stuff and Israeli intelligence does this, right, you know, right. and they, they don't work to get, you know, I mean, they, nah, uh, they definitely don't work with organized crime. Yeah. Okay. The point that I really take away from that, or just, you know, to make it as simplified as possible. And you've made this point many times in the past. And one of the few that I see do saying this, and I agree with you that it's long since been the differentiation to where almost to the point to where I would ask the question whether the governments of either Israel or the United States are, in fact, even in control of this multinational insecurity state or intelligence apparatus. And yeah. So about that, let me mm -hmm. read something for you. So mm -hmm. basically, this group in Iran-Contra that I sort of mentioned earlier, drug traffickers, bankers, uh, arms traffickers, intelligence agents, all of this stuff. Um, when it came out in, con in Congress, the Congress congressional investigation at Iran-Contra, this group 
that Oliver North was operating mm. was called the Enterprise. And I think that's a pretty fair name for it because it's a business. Mm-hmm. And more broadly speaking, all of this stuff is a business. Arms trafficking, drugs trafficking, trafficking, people trafficking, it's a business. Right. And this is these are the people that run and, and seek to have a monopoly over that business. So when you get you, you hear about people being arrested for drug trafficking or sex trafficking or whatever, it's consolidation. It's not aimed at ending it. It's right. aimed at having it concentrated in the hands of, of these people, mainly the people that are the descendants of those that saw organized crime and intelligence originally merge decades ago. Right. It's consolidation. And it's the same with organized crime. Like some of those big trials in the eighties were like, Oh, we took down Tony Salerno and whatever consolidation of organized crime. And I point out in the book that this has been going on for a long time. A lot of times when organized crime kingpins come down, other people in organized crime are the people that, you know, snitch on them to the feds and help bring them down so they can take control of their, organized crime stuff and add it to their own, take control of it. It's consolidation a hundred percent. Now, now moving real quickly, aside from the, uh, the apparatus that is, you know, arguably no longer one or the other, but all the same point, I've been asking that question for a long time now. I think we've been had this conversation about whether the mafia just became the government and that's essentially what you're saying, right? (laughs) Yes. So, so this quote from this guy in Iran Contra, he's, he was a CIA officer involved in some of the stuff with Iran Contra, but he refused to cover it up and was going, it cooperated with Congress, largely forgotten. He was forced out of the CIA after cooperating. His name is Bruce Hemmings. Uh, he gave a quote defining what the enterprise was. Um, and I, I opened my volume one of the book with it. So I'll just sort of read it. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. He says, uh, who are these people? They are the group that is popularly called the enterprise. They are in and outside the CIA. They are mostly right-wing Republicans. Uh, Sidebar here. Uh, He's saying this during the Reagan-Bush administration. So I think it's fair to say now that at this point, it's mostly both parties. But he Mm -hmm. goes on to say, yeah, they are mostly right-wing Republicans, but you'll find a mix of Democrats, mercenaries, ex-officio mafia, and opportunists in the group. They are CEOs. They are bankers. They are presidents. They own airlines. They own national television networks. They own six of the seven video documentary companies of Washington, D.C., and they do not give a damn about the law or the Constitution or the Congress or the oversight committees, except as something to be subverted and manipulated and lied to. They abhor sunlight and they love darkness. They deal in innuendo, character assassination, and planted stories, the incomplete thought and sentence. They burn and shred files if caught. They commit perjury and when caught, they have guaranteed sinecures or cushy positions with large U S corporations. If you let them, he said this in like 1989, 1990, by the way, if you let them, they will take over not only the CIA, but the entire government and the world cutting off dissent, free speech of free media. And they will cut a deal with anyone from the mafia to Saddam Hussein. If it means more power and money, they sold 600 billion from the savings and loans in in the eighties. Drexel Burnham Lambert was part of that, and Epstein, that whole network, is part of that too. And then, that quote. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I thought you were done. Yeah, no, it's almost done. And then oh, diverted right. our attention to the Iraqis with the Gulf War and stuff, wow. because the Bush family is very involved with the savings and loan crisis stuff, mm-hmm. also. So that's part of where the Saddam stuff comes from. Um, they are ripping off America at a rate never before seen in history. They flooded our country with drugs from Central America cut deals with Haro in Mexico, Noriega in Panama, the Medellin and Cali cartels and Castro, and recently the Red Mafia and the KGB, which at that point was 
were business partners of Robert Maxwell, another <laughs> sidebar. Anyway, the last sentence of the quote, they ruin their detractors and they fear the truth. If they can, they will blackmail you, sex, drugs, deals, whatever it takes. So my book is about those guys and how Epstein is 100% a part of that group that Bruce Hemings describes. The history of that group is volume one. Volume two is um, the definitive case that Epstein was part of that group. And Leslie Wexner is an organized crime kingpin and Mm. where the Maxwells fit in. Wow. And how these people not just like own all this other stuff. uh, They own Silicon Valley and all of the, you know, and now it's digital blackmail, not sex blackmail. It's just incredible. Just that quote alone seems to encapsulate like everything, everything we're talking about. Like even and like, this is the that, this is a long time ago. This that's right. like thirty years ago, and he's saying if you don't stop these people, they're gonna destroy exactly. free speech. They're gonna cut off dissent. They're gonna destroy the. Me- I mean, look at today. I mean, it's just exactly. so. Yeah, it, I mean, it's so exactly this group you, is still in power, too. and I would say in the nineteen nineties, the Clintons basically. Uh, became a key part of this. Well, this is it's perfect- the Bushes and the Clintons, basically, is what you know. Right, the the, the people, the, the political dynasties we see mm-hmm. of people that are visible to the American public; those are the faces of the enterprise, right? As it is today. Well, this perfectly overlaps with the next point in regard to Trump in general, or really just as a talking point within the conversation, because one of my biggest fears right now is like what you just described, if taken to today, is obvious that the two-party illusion is a front to make us think the division's there. In reality, it's this big club and we ain't in it, and they're driving everything in today right now that we can see that that quote literally just laid out. So what are your what's your thoughts about today? Trump or the overlap. Well, finish my point. My biggest concern right now is that we're going to see whether the elections now or the next presidential election, where they're going to be people, however many, will be swayed yet again to think one party or the other is going to save them. And the Democrats are the ones doing the great reset. And I just, that's just not reality, in my opinion. So, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah. So, I think at this point, um, what in terms of elections, like Trump versus the DNC. Right. Yeah, which is like or Clinton's basically. Yeah. Well, DeSantis doesn't he like hold, hasn't he held like cabinet meetings in Jerusalem and like super tied up with Israel's lobby? So I don't necessarily trust him. What I think's going on uh, with the the MAGA people um, and the DNC is that I think both of these groups are go back to you know the enterprise in the mm-hmm. 80s because like i said earlier clinton was part of that when he was governor of arkansas and intimately involved with the same people behind that who aren't necessarily as visible to the public people like jackson stevens for example who bankrolled clinton and bush senior um uh so i think what happened at some point is that these groups um There are some, and I think these are the people behind Trump to a large extent, that want to restore sort of those glory days for this particular group from the 1980s. And they like the whole nationalist thing. And they want America, or at least they're the enterprise of the U.S., to be on top. Mm -hmm. Um, And they like having it in a nation state thing. Because also keep in mind, like Zionists in general and and the Israeli intelligence guys, I think there's two factions there, just like there are in the US. There's people that side with the WEF and the global government thing. And there's people that are uh, part of the same racket, but they're nationalists. I mean, Zionism is Jewish nationalism based around Israel, right? So when you look at Trump, for example, you have people like 
the insanely corrupt attorney general of the Reagan administration, Ed Meese, advising him. Mm. And you have people like uh, Michael Flynn, who wrote a book and is cozy with Michael Leiden, an Iran-Contra whistleblower, uh, whistleblower conspirator, sorry, the complete opposite. Um, <laughs> but Michael Leiden was involved in a bunch of this really shady stuff. Uh, and then you have like Oliver North, you know, in the periphery to an extent too. He was uh, put in charge of the NRA at some point. And, you know, I mean, these guys are like, they're criminals, but they like the whole nationalist thing. And like, you know, they justify their illegal activity as, as fighting communism. And they see communism, maybe they see, you know, the, the whole WEF push as that. And, and global governments and bringing in Russia and China and not. And I would say you would have those guys on one side and then you have the Clintons who come out of the same sort of thing and the power nexus behind them uh, siding more with the WEF types um, and engaging in the same sort of activity, but wanting um, that model to maintain the status quo. Um, and the Trump people have a different idea of what the status quo should be. So it's elite factional infighting, and both of these people go back to this stuff I talk about in volume one. And you you and I, you made this point before, and I think this is what's kind of broadened my perspective on this. I think that, you know, it seems today that it's easy to point out that groups like Russia or governments like Russia and China are at least in some regard, possibly entirely involved with and and promote the Great Reset direction. Yeah. But yet mm-hmm. at the same time, they seem to be kind of pushing back in certain ways. Like the argument, I guess, would be that it's po- these groups want to try to maintain some level of their own sovereignty, but yet they still want the control top down that that gives them. So is that kind of what you're seeing? Is there, there's like a little bit inner disputes, but ultimately they're all on the same page when it comes to. OK, direction. so one thing I do want to say is that. When you're talking about national governments, it's really important, and sometimes people forget this, that you can't treat the national government as a monolith. What do I mean by right, that? Right, right. What I just described in the U.S. is like there's factional infighting. I don't think either of the factions are like good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but they, they're competing. They have competing agendas, and maybe they have overlapping interests in common and collaborate on certain things and are at odds about other things. So. Russia and China are large countries. They're large economies. They have a long history. Um, And I think it's fair to say that even in the case of a place like China, where you technically only have one political party, uh, there's a lot of competing factions within that party. Right. right? Um, And it can get really complicated. So to be like, China's against this, China's for that. It's the most populated country in the world. It's one of the biggest countries in the world. It's hard to, I don't really like treating it as a monolith because there's different groups in it you know, fair, that, are, that are competing. Um, the group I specifically talk about with the Clinton White House stuff in China is, um, you know, sort of allied with organized crime elements in Macau, which used to be a Portuguese enclave now since I think 1999 is, is, has been integrated into the Chinese government. Um, and, you know, some of these state-owned enterprises being involved in illegal financial activity that's managed by this, this class in China, called, uh, depending on the translation, I guess, the princelings or the red princes who are the children of communist party elites of yesteryear who are basically given cushy positions at these state uh, owned enterprises or 
majority state-owned enterprises. And a lot of times they'll uh, steal money from them and put it in the offshore banking complex for their personal enrichment and stuff like that. And, you know, if you're born into a position of prominence, uh, China, just like other countries around the world, you can uh, use that to your advantage. And there's a reason that China has several billionaires. It's not um, a communist paradise. It, you know, money is money. And there's right. capital networks there and those have influence. So some people get really mad about that. And they're like, you know, nothing of China. Um, I don't know. But I mean, it's the world's largest economy now. And it's not, uh, you know, not everyone's on the same economic playing field in China. Absolutely. I well, just, and, and that's a I'm good sorry. Point. <laughs> that's a good point to make, though, in regard to, you know, it's, it's never that simple. And I think anybody, it's hard not to make some form of generalization when trying to have the broad discussion. But I, I get your point in general. But so still the same idea is that there's yeah, high so factions, essentially. I think some government. of these factions in China and Russia, there are a lot that like the, some of the Great Reset stuff. And I think yeah. there are people that maybe in, in the government that aren't necessarily allied with, uh, with that faction, but like the idea of being able to exert more control over the domestic populace because, you know, governments right, right, are governments right. exactly. and they like to maintain continuity of government. They want to stay in power indefinitely. They don't want people to rise up. Um, and, you know, revolution, whatever, governments do what they can do to prevent that. If you uh, can put people under technocratic control, right? it, it benefits that agenda. Um, the other thing is, too, and I think maybe some people in Russia and China have been suckered into this, uh, some of this stuff. So, for example, multipolarity, the multipolar uh, world order. If you read the WEF stuff, they're 100% all about multipolarity. And obviously, if you're in Russia and China, that model is going to sound much more attractive to you than U.S. imperialism, where the U.S. and U.S. empire dominate. You're like, yeah, everyone has an mm. equal seat at the table and we've wanted that forever. So why not do that? But if the WEF is cheering it on, maybe we should, have, you know, take some pause and be like, is that really the best system? Or is that because even what's what happening? Yeah. So, you know, if you read that joint statement between Russia and China about like multipolarity and stuff. And they talk about how it should be based in the UN and all of this stuff and the sustainable development goals and all this mm -hmm. other stuff that ties into great reset stuff. That's concerning, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, yeah. I just asked whether that's actually what's happening though. Right. You, they, it's the same as arguing what they're doing is about sustainability and, and it, that's just not even true though. No, like, the, so the UN sustainable stuff government. is a scam. Right. At the exactly. UN, because well, the UN has been pretty open, if you're willing to look, um, since the late 90s, that they mm -hmm. favor the opinions of corporations or public oh, yeah. private partnerships over the voice of the people, which, you know, the voice of the people is usually simplified to just the public sector, which isn't necessarily representative of the people. <laughs> right. And the public private partnership thing is something you are way ahead on in regards well, it's to fascism. I mean, well, exactly, yeah. and and mm -hmm. it's but it's it's something that's only just now seemingly bleeding into like general conversation about what stakeholder capitalism is and what these mean. You know, and just yeah. again to point out and give you a nod to that, that was something you were trying to you were ringing that bell a long time ago. That's what tends to happen when you're too far ahead of a story. Is nobody even knows what you're it happens about. all the time. I don't really <laughs> care. I try and tell people about stuff like when it I think it's pertinent or comes to my attention, and sometimes right. if it that's before, fine. I'm just trying to like inform people about stuff I think is important.
Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> I just, I still think this is just another cut. It's, this is global governance being framed as everybody has a say. And it, it's really only yeah. every state but it, has a say. And yes. That, Thank governance. you. Because what they do is they're, they, they use Ian Davis for my site wrote a really great piece about the civil society thing mm. where they say, oh, well, yes, public private partnership, but don't worry, you'll have a say because we're including civil society. Okay, what is civil society? I would encourage people to go read Ian's piece about it because mm-hmm. it's pretty telling. Think of it, for example, they're like, oh, yeah, well, we need people to represent society, civil society. So look at this NGO that represents uh, indigenous people in this part of the world. And, okay, that NGO uh, was created by a billionaire and, uh, you know, we'll include them and they'll have a seat at the table about what happens. Or something like that. I mean, think of all the NGOs, for example, that someone like Pierre Omidyar has funded. Mm -hmm. Okay, we included that one. So that's civil society or something like that. Or, um, you know, some some think tank, some some group that, you know, nominally claims to represent this, but they're financed by corporations and billionaires and whatever. And, you know, it's just it's just a part of an illusion that people are going to regular people are going to have a seat at the table. Right. Um, right. And it's how they stuff. play this game, as always. You know, the the the. Uh... Patriot Act has nothing to do with patriotism and so on. You know, they, they pump the words out in front of you. They want even the point they make about sustainability. You know, they, they really want you to think it's about sustainability. And even in, a, in it may be an intentional way, have scared people away from the entire idea of sustainability when what they're doing is not even remotely about sustainability at all. You know, at least yeah. in my opinion. And it's, it's no good. It's, it's not. Yeah. It, well, I was just going to uh, add to that. I don't know if you want to finish your thought before I jump in. No, I'm just I'm just ranting. Okay, (laughs) so the more you look at the sustainable development agenda at the UN or even in the US with the Inflation Reduction Act, it's all about making a new financial system. That's the the Inflation Reduction Act. What is it? What does it do? Does it reduce inflation? Well, what it does do is it created and no one's talked about this really, as far as I can see. I I put out a podcast with Catherine Austin Fitz about it like Mm -hmm. today. Um, It creates a national green bank. Have you heard about that? No, no. Go ahead. Yeah. Elaborate for me. And it creates, uh, I think, what they call the largest public-private partnership for fundraising for clean energy innovation. And mm. who is the main lobbyist for that bill? Bill Gates. He's taken credit for passing the Inflation Reduction Act. Who is going to get most of the money from the National Green Bank and this other lending program that they've created for green energy technology? Breakthrough Energy Catalyst, or BEC, which was created by Bill Gates in 2015. And also backing it are Jeff Bezos and BlackRock. (laughs) My God. And what it's about is taking taxpayer money using that to build up clean energy plants and stuff. Um, And then they own it. They own the renewables just like. um, So for example, a lot of people think, you know, solar panel, I can go off grid with solar panels. Solar panels are great in this future. You won't be allowed to put solar panels on your roof. They'll have solar panel factories that are green and then right. you have, you know, you're plugged into that grid and the owners of that are going to be breakthrough energy catalyst partners and, and investors. To you, it's the same thing. You still have to pay your bill and it's exactly. contingent on them. And it, yeah, this is just an illusion. I mean, it's exactly, it's not, but it's this like is a care. way for us taxpayers to finance it. Right, right, but right. The, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, exactly. 
it, it, it's a scam and it's they, being made by bankers and billionaires. Right. Exactly. And, who, and they're the ones who that ostensibly will have contaminated the environment and the actual existing environmental crises of like extreme pollution and other stuff. Right. And it was these guys. It was it's, these guys. It's it's like arguing that what you're going to do is shut down these farmers in any location we're talking about right yeah, now. Yeah, shut down and organic yet, farms right, that are small yet, scale and family farms. Right. Which if if you're an environmentalist with any brain cells, it should be obvious to you that small scale organic farming is good for the planet and the food supply. Why is the government shutting that down? Why doesn't Bill Gates, who's the largest private landowner of farmland in the U.S., a lot of that farmland isn't in production. Why doesn't he reforest it if carbon dioxide is the big environmental threat? Since trees are carbon sinks and take, you know, they they turn CO2 into oxygen. Why doesn't he do that? No, he's all about uh, financing vehicles for clean energy, whatever, uh, carbon markets, carbon taxes, creating, f- you know, new financial products to save the ocean and all this stuff. It's a bunch of bunk natural yeah. asset corporations. This, these are all the, if you actually bother to pay attention to what the UN backed, uh, you know, sustainable, whatever solutions that are being sold to you. They're called NBS or nature-based solutions. It's all new financial gimmicks. Right. It's new banking crap. It's, it's new creative ways to scam and loot the public. Right. None of it has anything to do with environmental or planetary health. They have people riled up about the environment and the planet, and they think they can sucker you in to this stuff by manipulating your concerns whether they're legitimate or not, it doesn't matter. The solutions you're being offered by these people are illegitimate. Absolutely. And, and this is what I was going to say about the Dutch farmers is that, you know, that even this, even if you think, or even if they do have an effect on what they say is hurting the planet, the bottom line is that there's a thousand examples, including the, the governments themselves that are doing exponentially more than even a fraction. You know, it's, it's a, it's an illusion, like you're saying. And even the Dutch farmers are speaking out about that. And in, in Ireland, or anywhere else are saying, look, we are being told to stop these very important fields that they need for wheat. And it's one of the most important areas. And they're going to be putting uh, what they say, uh, solar panels or wind turbines in here. And the bottom line is that's while they're telling you there's a supply issue, like they're creating the very problem and they're only taking away a slim fraction of what they say the problem is. The U.S. military is the biggest polluter on the planet. You know, there's Absolutely. a good example and they just mm-hmm. don't focus on the large. And it, They never mention the military. Right, right. ESG is another example exactly in this conversation. And this is what I find so ridiculous about the green discussion is the U.K. is one of the first and the U.S. is having the same conversation about allowing weapons, nuclear technology, and even oil to be green under ESG because that leads to them taking actions around the world that then lead to them being able to make better choices for green future. Like yeah, I can't well, even believe they made that argument, but they a did. A lot of these UN-backed financial goobly guck <laughs> solutions, you know, are based around basically allow corporations and whoever to destroy the environment as never before, as long as they pay for it or they right. offset it when carbon markets. It's the same stuff. as the carbon tax for you. You know, the average person yeah. is going to be forced to pay for more gas. So, exactly. So the way, it, the way it's set up, it creates all those loopholes for corporations and stuff, but for regular people, it restricts your energy use. And if you, your right. energy use is restricted, your economic 
your activity, your ability to participate in the economy is also restricted and your ability and the number of kids you're able to have and support is restricted as and well. And that's a rapid, that's a rapid flow right into the great reset control panopticon totally. as, you, as you framed it as, because what they're, they're forcing you into a position where you have to accept support from the government. And then there's their UBI and there's their loans. I was yeah. just talking about this last night. There's there, here's a hundred, here's a loan coming from the supermarket or here's the government giving you a little bit of an allotment and it's all happening right now. And digital IDs will be the way you have to get it to accept it and so on. And it's just ushering you right in. Yeah. I mean, we saw this being planned with COVID. Not all of it was necessarily implemented, but I'll give you an example. Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. uh, They put out a paper in 2020 about how to get people to take the vaccine in populations that were uh, vaccine resistant. One of the people that wrote that paper was NQTEL Vice President Luciana Borio, who was later put on Biden's COVID advisory, whatever. Mm. Um, And she used to be the top scientist at the FDA. She said, uh, well, she and the other authors of this paper at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, which is we've talked about many times, Mm -hmm. involved in the dark winter anthrax biosecurity buildup. Um, They basically, yeah, they basically say um, in that paper, link vaccination status to people's ability to get food stamps and rent assistance. If you don't do what we say, or we, you know, you don't comply enough with basically what is a digital ID, like a vaccine passport, then your government benefits are gone. If you want government right. benefits, then you have to be part of the system. Yeah, that's It's the same things happening all over the place right now with food or yeah. any other kind of mechanism to drive you into doing it. That's and what the food and energy crisis that they've manufactured is right. all about. Because hungry, cold people are desperate people, and they're much easier to control and herd. And that's what this is about. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it for now. I always love diving into this stuff with you. I think it's just so transparent, and that's what your work tends to do—is really kind of, you know, it really does illuminate the the undercurrents that are right there. You know, the the working together, the the the, the agreements, the, the the deals being made. And so, I highly recommend again that you take a look at her book. That, that's uh, when is it coming out again? When's the the date? So, volume volume one comes out September twenty second, and volume okay. two comes out a few weeks later in October. Um, but if you order the bundle, you know you'll get them as they're available. Um, or you can just start with volume one and decide if you want volume two. I really want to make it clear to people. Volume two is the Epstein specific stuff. Volume mm-hmm. one is pre Epstein though. Epstein is mentioned throughout it. And there's a, a good amount of material in volume one on Robert Maxwell as well. Um, but you know, the bulk of the Epstein stuff is in volume two. So if people only interested in that, I can understand why you might get volume two, but you're going to miss a lot of the, uh, context that's I, I think pretty important for fleshing out the case I'm trying to make in volume two if you don't um, right, read right. volume one um, so you know I mean that's obviously up to people how they how they deal with it um, but I you know I think it's important in the sense that we have to understand the power structure here this is my effort to flesh out this power structure of which you know which protected Epstein and benefited from his activities and mm-hmm. it's more than just intelligence, right? It's intelligence and organized crime. And it's not just U.S. intelligence. It's Israeli intelligence. There's U.K. intelligence in the mix. I mean, it, it, it gets big quickly, right? And it's complicated, but I do my best to make it easy to follow. Mm-hmm. But we can't um, fix the problem until we know the problem, right? right? And so what I'm trying to show here is a detailed case that, you know, over the last 
a hundred years or so, we don't have a legitimate government. Our public institutions are not savable and they do not work for the people. They work for professional criminals right? who are I looting mean- us and have been looting us. And the grift, the looting, they can't loot anymore. Uh, and so now they're creating this new economic system and slavery system to maintain the status quo because when people realize how looted they've been, they'll be mad and they'll want accountability and heads will roll and they're preventing that. They want to stay at the top forever. Well, it makes perfect sense. I, you know, and this is such an important conversation to be had because it, 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 I, I feel like we're at the slope that's getting increasingly more slippery as we go forward. And if we don't do something now, it'll be too late from, you know, whether we're talking the technocratic panopticon discussion or whatever the next step is, you know, we need to stand back. And, you know, it's, this is a huge conversation. And the points that you made very clear in this, it really does speak to the larger discussion, which, which ties into elections, which ties into the, I mean, every direction you take this. And I think we need to stand back and realize that by playing that game, we're only continuing the problem. And I, you know, it's, it's hard for people to wrap their mind around how something like an, the entire system of elections or voting in general in this country don't really, in my opinion, mean what we think they do. But if we don't start having those conversations and doing something now, I don't think it's going to be easy to make a choice. You know, or the choice will be removed from you in the near future. I don't know if you share my, my potential. Yeah. Uh, well, I think there just needs to be a discussion. Like The yeah. government has to be investigated and held accountable, but the government's incapable of investigating itself. And that's so where the two-party paradigm we, comes in. And yeah, so what do we do in that situation? You know, where uh, we have our we have no agency with our right. government and there's no way to investigate it with government connected ent- entities. Yep, exactly. <laughs> like what what happens then? Because that's the issue. That's the problem. So let's talk about the actual problem. Right. Um, you have to accept that we have one first and then we can, you know, and just <laughs> yeah. and and and, for, and most importantly, you know, people always do. Well, what do we do then? And it's like, well, you know what? I could put out some solutions off the top of my head, but just, you know, without not having a direct solution in the moment does not mean it's not, it's not important to point to the problem, make sure people see that, you know, cause the solutions are, that's the hardest part. You know, how do you pull out of that? That's the idea of like not voting. That's my opinion of saying vote no one 2024. It's like, well, what do you do instead? It's like, look, I'm just trying to get us talking about it, you know? And so that's why your work is so important. So thank you. Well, I don't know. I mean, if you're a Trump supporter and you're like Biden stole the election, I mean, how long are you going to keep voting? Uh, right, you know, exactly. if you are willing to acknowledge that the last election was compromised, you right. know, yep, and and you can go further back and prove that both sides have been doing it for a long. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Right, one hundred percent. It's they've it gets into a partisan. It becomes a partisan issue every cycle. But uh, if you're able to step back, I mean, election integrity has been a long-standing concern yeah. ever since they introduced digital systems. It's been an issue. So. Oh, what a shock! What a perfect overlap to where we're going today. I always picture the <laughs> scarecrow from the Wizard of Oz when they do that. You know, it's like no, it's him, no, it's them, and then we all just go, oh well, and sit back down. You know, it's like yeah. that's what we need to get away from. <laughs> but thank you for being here and having the conversation, Whitney. I appreciate it. Um, last thing, any any insight into because everyone, everyone's asking me, when's Whitney going to write again for T-Lab? Any idea on what might be coming in the future for The Last American Vagabond? Any article topics or we're not there yet? Uh, no, not quite there yet because um, I'm hoping to, to dig into some of this ocean um, stuff when it comes to what I sort of talked about earlier. Some of these climate change, financial, mm-hmm. whatever. So there's a big push to do that with the oceans. Um, but I'm trying to just not work myself to death right now. Um, so I don't, I mean, I have to, you know, I'm probably going to go like visit family and stuff in a couple, in like a month or so. And, uh, I don't know. So, so we'll see. I mean, hopefully soon, but a lot of my stuff, uh, like for T-Lab, generally speaking, it is, it tends to be focused on like more specific stuff. 
uh, either like tech intelligence stuff or the domestic terror angle. So anytime there's developments on, on that, that I, I think are noteworthy, um, you know, they're almost yeah. always for T-Lev. So. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it. And I'm sure the rest of them are, I was just going to give a shout out to the last one that you put up for the last American vagabond on that note. Exactly. In the regard to Ukraine, the new Al Qaeda and how completely ahead of the discussion that was like everything else you seem to put forward. So thank you for your work in general, Whitney. Thank you for being here. Um, anything else you want to drop for us? coming up in the future social media links anything else uh yeah so i would just encourage that if people want to follow my work especially updates on the book or really anything else the best thing to do is not use social media to follow my work and sign up for my newsletter unlimitedhangout.com slash newsletter you can sign up there and get everything i've put out content wise or in every interview um I've done that week and stuff once a week in your inbox uh, because deplatforming is going to continue. And it's, you know, it's a, as you know, very well, Ryan, it ends up becoming, you know, platform hopping, pirate streaming, all of this stuff. Um, it can be complicated if you don't want to have to, you know, uh, keep up as a content consumer, um, then it's just easier to sign up for a, a newsletter or something like that. There's also RSS feeds for people that aren't familiar with that. They're, basically a way to have a feed of all the content produced by your favorite content creators. Most websites uh, have an RSS feed you can add. Um, and, you know, you can pick your favorite uh, content creators and have it all in a feed, sort of like, you know, a Facebook news feed or a Twitter news feed or whatever, but it's one that's that you uh, curate and it's not censored. Absolutely. And I'll so, make sure to include mm -hmm. those in the show notes for people to check out because she's, you know, a lot of great work still coming out. So thank you for being here. And as always, everybody. Anytime. Thanks. It's always a pleasure, Whitney. I always enjoy our conversations. As always, everybody out there, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant.